I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So wait, what were you doing in 2011? Oh my god. This... <laughs> we just talked about my son's 18th birthday party, and he's also graduating high school this weekend, so is this like a... You want a serious answer? Is this just a way of making me feel old? I think that's a false dichotomy, my friend. I think it can be both. <laughs> okay. I, all right. I think I was actually teaching. The reason, I, the reason I can mark this is because I was teaching at Princeton in 2011, which is not a common thing for me to do. I normally teach in Kansas City. Miles, our youngest son, was a year old. Moss was six. Um, I had gotten back from my second reporting trip to Iraq in the summer of 2010. So yeah, that was Do you sad. remember anything about the economy? I remember it was doing better, like better than it had been during the 2008, 2009 crash, but Obama was afraid to talk about it doing better because he didn't want to piss everyone off who was still mad about the crash. And all right, all right, okay. There was a debt ceiling thing, right? Is that what we're, is that where we're headed here? They had a debt ceiling standoff. There was a... There was a debt ceiling standoff um, and Obama was president, but the Republicans won the House in 2010 and they refused to pass an increase in the debt ceiling, allowing the country to issue debt to pay the bills we had already agreed to pay. They wanted huge cuts to spending programs in the regular budget, which is not the same thing as the debt ceiling. So they linked the budget and the debt ceiling and said they'd refuse to approve the debt ceiling increase without spending cuts in the budget. Yeah. And all right. So ta-da, same thing happening now. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, we we specialize in viewing politics through the lens of literature on the show. I think it's safe to say that we are not as good at viewing politics through the lens of economics. Which is why we have a guest today who is an expert on the economics of politics and the politics of economics. 
Felix Salmon is here to talk to us about the economics and politics of this spring's debt ceiling dispute. Uh, he is the chief financial correspondent at Axios and the host of the weekly Slate Money podcast, which I enjoy. Um, he has worked for the noted economist Nouriel Roubini and outlets from Reuters to Condé Nast. He has won every major business journalism prize, including the American Statistical Association's Excellence in Statistical Reporting Award. He has a brand new book out called The Phoenix Economy, Work, Life, and Money in the New Not Normal. Welcome, Felix. Thank you so much. So we opened our show with a brief summary of the 2011 debt ceiling negotiations. Obama did negotiate with Republicans in that year, and that led to the Budget Control Act of 2011, which reduced government spending by $917 billion over 10 years and raised the debt ceiling to $2.1 trillion. And we hit that ceiling again in 2013 when the Republicans who controlled the House wanted budget cuts and an elimination of funding for the Affordable Care Act. And that time, Obama refused to negotiate. The government shut down for 16 days and the Republicans folded one day before the government would have run out of money. They raised the debt ceiling with no significant cuts. So which approach is Biden taking here? Biden seems to be taking the latter approach. Um... Or maybe, maybe just say it's a slight shuffling of the two. He's shuffled the two together. I think he's open to some spending cuts and some negotiations. But one of the things he's been quite consistent about is saying, look, if you want to ask for certain spending cuts, then can you please just be specific about what spending cuts you want? This is quite a sensible political tactic of his because... He can then go to the public and say, like, you know, the Republicans asked me to cut this and cut that, and I refused. Right now, the Republicans are not being specific about what exactly they want to cut. They just throw large numbers around without any specificity. That's obviously very difficult in terms of coming to a negotiated conclusion. Um, But it does kind of increase the chances that eventually they're just going to have to raise the debt ceiling without any spending cuts at all. So when you say not being specific, I mean, they did pass a budget, right? But is, is that at all involved in these negotiations or is that not even a starting point? And they're, they're talking about other, other things that they're trying to negotiate. So yeah, budgets count. But yeah, in terms of the debt ceiling and the debt ceiling negotiations, um, what the Republicans are basically doing, I think, if you look sort of at the big picture here, is trying to put on a show to the American public saying, we really care about spending, we really care about the national debt, we want lower spending, lower deficits, lower debt, and we are willing to fight hard for those beliefs. And so long as they get across that message, everyone understands that ultimately they're going to have to raise the debt ceiling. Um, you know, similarly, the Biden administration wants to get across the message that they are not going to be held hostage by the Republicans and will st- stick to their guns when it comes to their um, policies and their manifesto. And so, you know, they don't want to be seen to be giving in. And it's all kind of kabuki, right? Because no, everyone agrees that the debt ceiling needs to be raised and the only question is when and whether there's and how much stupid pain there's going to be in the meantime 
I mean, one of the things I know what we know now, we're recording this on um, on Saturday, uh, the 20th. Um, and what we know now is that the talk sort of broke down yesterday. They, they seemed like they were making progress. And then and then I think either McCarthy or one of his representatives came out and said, OK, we're pulling out of the talks. It's not working. They'll probably get back to it. But my understanding and the reporting that I've read is that work requirements on Medicaid benefits is one of the things that is a sticking point, which is also a little bit kabuki like because there are already work requirements on food assistance and welfare, which Biden voted for in the 90s, by the way, and he admitted to voting for. And could you unpack this a little bit for us? Like, why do they want this? They actually poll very well work requirements. Maybe that's why they want them. It's just a sort of a way to sort of stick it to Biden. Yes, exactly. Like this is one of those things where Americans aren't as a nation particularly fond of the welfare state. You know, if Americans see a poor person, they think to themselves, and this is overgeneralizing wildly, but but broadly speaking, they're like, you know, it's your fault. Why don't you go out and earn some money? And okay, if you are going out and working and earning money and you're still poor because you're not earning enough money, then maybe we can top it up somehow. But we don't want to encourage laziness by just giving people money for doing nothing at all. And there is this sort of deep American Protestant work ethic underlying that. And you're right, it does poll quite well. And so again, in terms of the politics of all this, this is something the Republicans can ask for that they think will poll well, as opposed to say, you know, massive cuts to Social Security or something like that, which would poll very badly. So can I ask a sort of basic question here? The, the debt ceiling is um, $31.4 trillion. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around that number. And that's how much we've already borrowed. Is that bad? I mean, I generally oppose Republicans in all things, but do they have a point, any point at all, that we shouldn't be this much in debt? Is that like a, can you contextualize that number or does does the number actually just not matter at all? So there, this isn't a live debate in the economics profession. You can find economists on any side of this. So I'm not going to be able to give you a you know, 100% certain answer on this one. There is a broad consensus that if a country has a very large amount of debt, then that can cause, start to cause problems. Um, it means, for instance, that all of that government borrowing crowds out private sector borrowing. Now, the people with the money to lend wind up lending it all to the government, and that means there's less money to lend to individuals and corporations who want to you know, invest and grow. There's no evidence that's happening in the United States. Um, there used to be this feeling that once debt reached around 90 to 100% of GDP, then things could start getting a bit gnarly. Um, I'm not sure that's really been borne out by what we've seen in places like Japan. But, you know, there was people saying, well, Japan is a special case. The fact is, we don't really know. There have been points in the past, especially after the Second World War, where we had very high debt compared to GDP, but then it came down quite quickly. And right now, the debt doesn't look like it's going to come down very quickly. So... We're kind of in uncharted territory here. For the time being, there doesn't seem to be any immediate problems to having a large debt. Um, I was just in Washington, D.C., and there were lots of signs saying there's $31 trillion of debt. So that's obviously bad. And it's not 
obviously causing any great harm. But, and then one, oh yeah, and one other thing I should say is that economists will almost universally tell you that there is this thing called the household fallacy, right? That people think, if I personally owed this much money, then that would be bad. You know, if I have large student loans or a large mortgage or something, that feels bad. And I need, and, um, and people sort of argue by analogy to households and say, well, you know, if you wouldn't do it on a household level, then it doesn't make sense to do it at a government level. And that's just a really bad analogy because households can't print dollars and the government can, right? So long as you can borrow all of the money you need in your own currency, that's an incredibly powerful thing to be able to do. And the United States doesn't really have any obvious limit on how much it can borrow. So it can borrow the money. And in fact, it has a legal obligation to borrow a whole bunch of money because we've passed a whole bunch of spending bills that obligate us to spend this money. Um, we're not bringing in enough money in taxes to be able to cover that. So we have to borrow the difference, which means that we need to raise the ceiling. Like there's no two ways about it. So yeah, there's a lot of this is just simple mathematics. It has to be raised whether or not it's a good idea to have that much debt. I will point out in Biden's favor that like, he would like to raise taxes on the wealthy and the Republicans are having none of that. I mean, that's the other way to fix this other than spending cuts, which has, you know, sort of been taken off the table. Right, exactly. Um, that, point out. That if, you're, if what you're worried about is deficits, then yeah, you can shrink deficits by raising taxes. Uh, I don't think that even Biden is proposing to shrink deficits enormously by raising taxes, but we can definitely make a move in that direction. So your book, The Phoenix Economy, examines how our economic lives were changed by and during the COVID pandemic. And one thing that you point out, I really enjoyed the book, was that um, the poor did better than the rich during this era. Um, I wondered if you could talk to us about this conclusion and then read a little bit to the book. And we're going to connect that back to what we've been talking about regarding the debt ceiling. Yeah, this was one of the most interesting parts of the pandemic for me, especially in the United States. This is not true broadly around the world, but it was true in the United States, that a bunch of the fiscal policy in particular, and also some of the interesting things that happened in the Great Resignation, caused inequality to go down. And it's been so long in America since inequality was going down that we're like, whoa, you know, we can barely believe it. But we had a bunch of money going to the poor. We had a bunch of unemployment checks coming out. We had PPP checks. We had stimulus checks. We had $1,400 just appearing in our bank accounts every so often. Um, and we, at the same time, saw a bunch of people just taking the opportunity of the pandemic to quit the jobs they hated, often in the service industry, and that reduced the number of people willing to do those jobs. And therefore, increased the amount of money that companies needed to pay to find people to do those jobs. And you really found this sort of de facto US minimum wage effectively doubling from about $7 to about to about $15 an hour. And that was fantastic for the poor and poverty went down by an absolute record amount. So there was a huge silver lining in the pandemic in terms of the wealth and the income of the of the poorest, you name it, 10%, 20%, 50% of Americans. Um, I mean, I to me, you know, I just, it, it feels like that's kind of like what the Republicans are mad about, but never mind. <laughs> I would like you to, do read that passage from the book, though. There's sure. a really interesting, where you give us some, very toward the end, some really amazing statistics about this. 
Um, sure. So here, here we go. Um, UC Berkeley's superstar inequality researchers, Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, along with their colleague Thomas Blanchett, put a huge amount of effort into calculating the effects of the pandemic on US inequality in particular. Their main finding will come as no surprise to anybody. While the 2020 recession was very sharp and painful, it only lasted a couple of months, and then the recovery came at a blistering, unprecedented pace. To no one's great surprise, the rich recovered first, the poor last. But then comes the surprising bit, which is that the poor actually did better than the rich overall. In January 2020, the average disposable income for an American in the top 10% was $268,900 per year, while the bottom 50% had just $24,200 of spending money on average. A common way to measure inequality is to just look at the ratio between the two, in this case, 11.1. By December 2021, the top 10% had seen their income rise to $280,600, while for the bottom 50%, it had gone up to $26,300. The ratio of the former to the latter had decreased to 10.7. At the height of the pandemic, the contrast was more striking still. In March 2021, the ratio was 288,400 to 40,900. The former was just seven times larger than the latter. Alternatively, look at 2021 as a whole and then compare it to 2019 as a whole. The entire bottom half of the US income distribution, more than 60 million households, saw its income rise on average by an astonishing 20.3%. A lot of that increase came in the form of COVID relief checks, stimmies, that were always designed to be temporary. But even looking past government aid, the bottom 50% saw its average pre-tax income rise by 11.7% in 2021, and that's in real terms after accounting for inflation. The following year, inflation did erode some of those gains, but not most of them. Growth, invention, and other upside surprises are often connected to a surplus of risk capital sloshing around the system, which is exactly what we saw during the pandemic. Thousands of outre projects were funded in 2020 and 2021, most of which were destined to fail, but some of which, statistically speaking, are certain to succeed spectacularly. That part of the inequality equation is global, although the US does attract more than its fair share of such funding. More interesting is what's happening at the bottom end of the US income distribution. The influx of capital into the working classes and the level of social stability that came with it was a liberating force for millions. The eviction moratorium imposed by the Centers for Disease Control for Health Reasons probably had an even bigger effect. Suddenly, the famous precariat, the people living paycheck to paycheck, often being exploited in the gig economy while paying off huge student, while paying off huge student loans, found themselves with a level of stability many of them had never experienced before. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm a big fan of what you call this influx of capital into the working classes. And it shows that we can influence economic quality of life in lower income brackets if we want to. The question is, do we still want to do that? Will this continue in any way? Is the work requirements that the Republicans want for Medicaid are moving in exactly the opposite direction, it seems to me. So... It really kind of depends to me um, how you think about we. <laughs> a lot of these discussions 
um, a lot of these discussions think about we as being the government, right? And the government writes the checks to the poor and the poor do well. And the government in, you know, imposes work requirements on the poor and the poor do less well. And the poor are just sitting there as relatively powerless individuals in America. And they wind up effectively doing as well or as badly as the US government wants them to do. And the power just sits in Washington. And I think what we saw during the pandemic was the rise not only in incomes of the poor, but also in power of the poor, that they found themselves with bargaining power for the first time. The relation between labor and capital started becoming much more even for the first time that more or less any of us can remember. The poor started being able to quit their jobs and find better paying new jobs. And they started being able to unionized, they started being able to demand higher wages, and employers started realizing that they needed to pay people more in order to get them to do work. And all of these things happen outside this question of like, you know, should the government impose work requirements on Medicare and things like that. So yes, we can have debates about the government, and obviously what the government does for the poor is very important, and poverty reduction programs are crucial. But Underneath that, what we saw during the pandemic, and I think this is here for this foreseeable future, is actually something more powerful still in a way, which is that we've empowered the working classes to demand better working conditions and better pay. I love that. I mean, I, look, I'm a fan of that. It's, it's a really remarkable thing because it has been a long time since you've seen people be able to bargain for better wages. I just, you know, just in my anecdotal memory of the last 20 years, you know, and I, there are some issues, though, that I think I wonder how they're going to affect that. Part of it you talk about in the book are extremely low interest rates, right, which were part of that, which are have now changed in the last year because the Federal Reserve has raised rates significantly. Um, and the other thing that I thought about was that immigration. I mean, Trump immediately closed the borders using this law that uh, that allowed that was associated with influenza and different you know diseases saying that you can deny asylum to anyone who who might be bringing a disease into the United States. And that law has just been, you know, like that. They just stopped doing that. Right. So I wonder, could you talk about those two issues that that's, maybe we'll just start with one. Let's start with interest rates. <laughs> well, I mean, immigration. I can I can talk about immigration. for hours. I think the first thing you need okay. to understand about immigration and I'll come on to interest rates in a minute. But the thing you have to understand about immigration is that it's good for both labor and capital in a weird way. Obviously, oh, okay. companies want new people to do the jobs. We have a major labor shortage in the United States right now, which was caused in large degree by COVID, right? A lot of people died. A lot of people got long COVID. A lot of people just got, you know, a feeling of YOLO and I don't like my job and I'm going to quit it and I'm going to go and lie on a beach or something like that or start my own company. And so... We do have still like this incredibly low unemployment rate um, that is causing a labor shortage and immigration would help alleviate some of that labor shortage. But immigration, and this is something which people, economists have really studied for decades, at the margin doesn't really have any huge effect on wages, but probably brings them up rather than down. Um, the, the immigrants wind up 
starting companies and employing people and increasing demand for labor and growing the size of the economy. And most vibrant economies have pretty strong um, degrees of immigration. And the more immigration America has, historically speaking, the better its economy has done and the better off its workers have been. So I think we can we can be pro-immigration while still wanting more power for the working classes. I think that's easy to hold both of those two ideas in your head at the same time. Um, interest rates are slightly more interesting. Um, you know, the, the whole point of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates is to cool demand in the economy. They thought that the economy was running yeah. too hot and they just wanted companies to slow down a bit and hire fewer people and try and reduce demand for labor, among other things. And that will definitely show up in reduced demand for for workers in the bottom half of the income distribution, for sure. But it also, but one of the weird things is it has shown up initially, mostly in the top half of the income distribution. If you look yeah, at the- Yeah, that's what I've been noticing. If you right? look the at software where- software engineers exactly, are all getting laid off. Exactly. The big layoffs have been in places like Google and Amazon and Facebook, right? They haven't been in fast food joints, right? So, uh, you know, maybe that's the way we can reduce demand is by laying off a few software engineers earning half a million a year and they'll have to find some new job paying 400,000 a year. And that could have the same effect. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. This is fascinating. I am curious and I think we're probably going to do a, just a whole separate episode about this later, but I'm really curious for your take on how this will fit in. Like, I've been reading all of this stuff about um, efforts in different states to loosen the regulations on like labor, by, labor from minors. And also, of course, there have been some exposés about exploitation of um, migrant children for labor. And, but it seems like two separate things, like both this kind of um, like performative Republican effort to be like, well, we want our children to work. And it's also right, like an attempt to in some way address this labor shortage that isn't immigration. I'm just curious what you think about that and what potential impact, if any, it will have. Right. I mean, <laughs> there, there are a lot, you are absolutely right. There's a whole bunch of very, very separate issues being conflated here. Um, one is the, again, that kind of nostalgic Republican idea of like, I had a paper round when I was a teenager and it was great for me and I learned the power of a dollar and the power of hard work and we should encourage, you know, our children to find jobs like that. You know, that kind of thing, again, plays well with a certain part of the electorate. It is completely unrelated to the other thing that's happening, which is genuine exploitation of minors who are being forced into work and sometimes not paid at all, um, who are often migrants, who are often undocumented, who are often just being completely exploited. And that is and always has been and always should be, and as far as I'm, I'm aware, probably always will be illegal. It's not really being enforced super hard in all states. Um, but even if you pass laws sort of saying like we should allow kids to work, like the extreme exploitation of migrants is something that is not going to be made legal and obviously shouldn't be. All right. So let's say we default. 
let's say let's say they don't get it put together, okay? <laughs> uh, no. So what would happen? The stock market would crash. I assume it went down like 19%, I think, in 2011 when we got close to it. Uh, the bond market would go haywire. Maybe the U.S. would get another S&P downgrade on its debt, which is what happened also in, in 2011, if I'm remembering right. Or maybe that was an earlier, you can tell me. Um, but would no, this really affect... Okay. Would this really affect people who don't have large stock and bond holdings? You know, I mean, you pointed out in the book, you have this this idea of like the enforced hibernation of COVID actually had some benefits, right? Um, is it possible that a debt default uh, and ensuing economic winter would have some of the same benefits, <laughs> especially for the working class? We just do the same thing all wow. over again. We get more stimmies, more everyone stays home. It'll be good. Uh, you know. Um, okay. <laughs> I, 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 um, my thesis in the book is that we're in the new not normal and lots of unexpected things happen. Um, and we have to be open to like crazy unexpected tail events. And I suppose that in principle, like a US government default suddenly being a good thing would be extremely unexpected. I also think it would be incredibly unlikely. Um, there is a lot of doom and gloom and, and parades of horribles being wheeled out in terms of what would happen in the event of default because we haven't defaulted really since 1878. We don't really know, so I can't tell you what would happen. But what I can tell you is that the treasury bond market is the bedrock upon which the entire global financial system sits. Uh, those very stable and predictable cash flows in terms of the interest payments on treasury bonds coming from the US government and flowing into the entire global financial system is what keeps the global economy moving. Without those flows, everything grinds to like an immediately immediate halt. The money doesn't go where it needs to go. It doesn't uh, the you know the banking system suffers, and we, you what you wind up with is a global financial crisis that would probably be significantly worse than the one we had after Lehman Brothers failed. Right, Lehman Brothers was one smallish investment bank that was connected to many other financial players, but the U.S. government is connected to every single financial player in the world and much more profoundly on a much larger scale. So even if the payments were only delayed for a few days. The repercussions in terms of financial markets and financial plumbing would be absolutely enormous. Um, you know, I cannot tell you what would happen to the stock market. I cannot tell you what would happen to the bond market. I really don't know because we have no precedent for this kind of thing. But I can tell you with some degree of certainty that it wouldn't be good. And it wouldn't be good for working people or anyone. So you also make a fascinating point about space in the book. You point out that people were more evenly distributed after the pandemic. And I wonder if you could talk about how that might affect our economic lives going forward. So, yeah, we we are now working and living in a much broader potential space of people than we were pre-pandemic. So if you, where, where are you right now? Can I ask you? I am in, um, I'm in Italy. <laughs> I am in a small town in Virginia where I've never been in my life. Um, the point is we are managing to produce this podcast from all over the place in a way that 
might have been technically possible pre-pandemic, but I can tell you as someone who did a lot of podcasts pre-pandemic, no one did this. It wasn't normal. And what we found is that a lot of things were were amenable to us moving to places where there were a bit more space. And effectively what happened was that the um, commercial real estate, office space, places that were paid for by employers, all of that capital wound up moving into mostly like residential spaces in places like Virginia and Italy and all, all over the rest of the country and the world because people found themselves able to find space and afford space and spread out a bit and live in the way they wanted to, um, which isn't bad for cities, right? The cities have been doing incredibly well because people, that, that again, like people want to live in cities even if they don't have jobs there. And I live in New York and it's full of like young people who really want to live there even if they don't have a job that forces them to live there. And it's super vibrant and fun and exciting. And so what we have done is we've created this world and certainly this country where people can live in a way that really suits them rather than in a way that really suits their employers. And the result of that is that if you look at polls of how happy people are at work, we are happier now as a country at our jobs than we have ever been since polling began. And and we just have more control. And that, again, is part of the increased power of labor compared to where we were pre-pandemic. One of the, I mean, the, the point that you're making there, and I like that those polls, like, you know, Suki and I have done a lot of episodes about how terrible the pandemic was. So the way that this book is thinking about what happened, right, is cuts against the grain. It's, you know, and it's counterintuitive and it's more optimistic, which is what I like. Sugi doesn't like optimism, but she's allowing <laughs> it for this particular case. Um, just this once. So... As we close up, I mean, you also mentioned other things we didn't have time to talk about that people can read about in the book, you know, about how like social movements like Black Lives Matter were more successful in changing public opinion uh, during the pandemic than they had been previous to that. Um, but again, the pandemic's over, you know, so to speak. Um, so, so we're told. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a new one on the horizon, hopefully. Um so will, to what extent will these conditions that created some of these benefits that you're outlining in the book and that we've been talking about continue? The effects of the Second World War lasted for, what, 50 years, 70 years, you know, at least 30 years. Um, large, traumatic societal experiences tend to redound for a very long time. And the pandemic was deeply traumatic for all of us. And the one of the symptoms of trauma is memory loss, right? We don't really remember a lot about the pandemic, even now. But that doesn't mean it's not going to have these continued profound effects. I don't know how long these effects are going to last. The ones I'm writing about in the book, you know, it could be 10 years, it could be 20 years, but it's definitely not stopping now just because the pandemic isn't with us anymore. These, you know, we had this mental health crisis that happened to all of us. We had these lockdowns that happened to all of us. We had, um, you know, children being stuck at home. We had friends dying. All of this stuff, we had the COVID as a subject basically dominating the news nonstop from March 2020 through February 2022. That's two full years with nothing else, you know, even the election barely even like touched it. And 
and that is inevitably and you know going to have huge profound effects on how we live and how our lives organize themselves um where we have basically exited the post world war 2 era of stability and predictability we are now in what i call a new not normal of something of a world which is much less predictable i'm not trying to make predictions of how things are going to continue and where things are going to continue but i am saying that the effects of the pandemic are going to be felt in really large ways for the foreseeable future and you know it's incredibly easy to see how the pandemic caused say this banking crisis that we have right now while i was writing the book it never occurred to me that the pandemic would end up causing a banking crisis now that we have the banking crisis it's easy to see how that happened basically what the book does is it helps people understand when something very weird and unusual happens in the world something a bit counterintuitive to something that doesn't align with our priors what the book allows you to do is to think oh wait yeah we just had that huge pandemic and maybe it's because of that and that's the general idea i'm not saying that we're going to have a simple continuation of the current state of affairs in fact i'm saying we're not but whatever happens it is going to be pandemic related it's that the that pandemic is going to be the deep cause uh, Felix, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we want to encourage our listeners uh, to go and pick up The Phoenix Economy, Work, Life, and Money in the New Not Normal, which is out now. Thank you. Yes, please do. And let me know how what you think of it. Thank you very much. Thank you both. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!